Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. This is the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast, and this is episode number 171. My guest for today's episode is Ernest White II. Ernest is a writer and a traveler and a storyteller. He has a really fantastic program that is in its first season on television right now, and it's called Fly Brother. In this conversation, you'll hear that it was just picked up for a second season. But something I think is really cool about it is he's featuring some places that don't get a whole lot of coverage. And specifically, we talk about Namibia and we talk about Tajikistan, two places that I'm really excited to learn more about on his program and uh, two places that he's got some really cool stories from. He also mentioned a little, uh, little teaser into season two in that he's going to Sudan and that, I mean, especially right now with what's happening in Sudan is really fascinating to me. And his, his bravery and his willingness to do that and his openness and the message that comes out of his show, which is really like a universal brotherhood of people, is something that's really attractive to me and something that I'm really excited to follow. You know, yesterday was the anniversary of the death of Anthony Bourdain. And I think he left a massive hole in the, I don't know if you want to call it travel entertainment industry. Really, to me, it's like travel and cultural education and promotion of places and culture and people. And so people like Ernest have stepped up to, to fill that hole and to offer you know, a fresh perspective and, and new places and new people. And I just find that really, really exciting. A couple of years ago, I was fortunate enough to have Rolf Potts on the, on the podcast. He wrote a book called Vagabonding. Likely, if you're listening right now, you know of it or you know of him or you've read it. But he had a book release for a new book about souvenirs. And after that, I was able to, to mingle with some folks that spoke at his event and attended his event. And that's where I met Ari Shafir, who was on here maybe a year or so ago. And that's also where I met Ernest, and he was incredibly kind to say yes and to hop on this podcast. I've been following him and his like social media presence since that time. He's got a really great audio program, and he's featured on a lot of other people's programs, and he gives some really great informative and practical writing, and I really recommend that you go and, and check out his website where you can be linked to all of these things. He also has these curated lists of books and music and movies that are related to travel and to culture. And those things can be really actually really valuable primers before you travel to a place. Whenever I go anywhere, I try to read in advance and I try to read while I'm there. So while I was in Morocco, I was reading Paul Bowles, trying to get a feel for the Tangier that that he lived through, which maybe is a little bit different than the Tangier that I saw. But I think that's really cool that Ernst does that, and I'm going to start using the, the lists that he curates in my future travels as well. So please check out the links in the description for this podcast or the show notes, and you'll find all the information that I was just talking about. There's also information for how to access his television program. He mentions that it's going to be played on current, 
right now it's in a lot of regional public access and local channels. But this is something that I really hope gets picked up by Hulu or Netflix or something that is sort of universally available to everyone right now because I think it's, uh, it's really valuable, especially right now and how obvious it is that people are divided. You know, travel, I think, can be... It can really solve maybe the baseline of intolerance and racism and misunderstanding. You know, everybody traveling more, I don't know, is going to change the larger systems. But as we talk about in this episode, even if somebody has a radically different opinion from you, it's really hard to not like them on a deep level if you sit down with them or you break bread with them or you hear about their experiences or you have an opportunity to learn from them or to teach them. And travel forces you into those situations. Unless you're someone that just wants to travel and not talk to anybody, which I guess is a, I guess that's a thing. But, you know, I've been quite fortunate to get to be welcomed into homes and to share a meal and to be given assistance and to be taken around a country and to learn from people. And it has really transformed my life. And I know that it could be transformative for, for anyone who does that. So I think that's a great message that comes out of, of Fly Brother. And um, this was a real treat to get to talk to him. So uh, if you check out the show notes for this episode, you will also see a link to my Patreon account. You know what Patreon is, but uh, some of my kickbacks are shirts and stickers and things from around the world. And I'd love to get to a point where I can produce content solely for the Patreon members. So if you're able to support in that way, go check out the Patreon link. If not, please spread the word, share the podcast with people you know, subscribe, leave a review, a like, an ad. All that stuff helps to uh, market it a little bit virally. So, all right, folks, enjoy this one. I sure did. So again, thank you. I appreciate you. This is a, a real honor for me. This is really cool for me. Oh man, thank you. Likewise. I mean, I do remember you when I saw I, I, your card was memorable. It's like <laughs> got uh, like a globe on it or something like that. I just I remembered you. Cool. Yeah, I guess maybe that's a, a good place to start. Um, you know, we ended up in the same room, and that's through some type of a mutual connection to Rolf Potts. So I'm wondering, like. How did you get to that room and how do you know Rolf? So I was actually in, so I became aware of Rolf Potts many years before I ended up meeting him just because of his book, uh, Vagabonding and being one of the first guys to write about long-term travel in a digital era, you know? Mm. And um, so just, yeah, he was always, he always seemed accessible. He always uh, wrote things that I felt like were very resonant to my experience at the time. But uh, a few years, many years, not a few years, many years after that initial exposure to him, I happened to be at the screening of a documentary film in which I participated called Gringo Trails, which was about the perils of mass tourism. And he also had appeared in that film. And we were both at this 
party, this opening night uh, kind of screening and party. And we just uh, found ourselves standing next to each other, started com- started conversing, hit it off, just really great energy. We're both the, the sons of teachers. Mm. So that's kind of a thing. We're <laughs> comparing notes. And um, later he was like, hey, man, I'm having some folks over at my place, you know, later. If you can stop by, great. And uh, that's how we ended up in the room together. <laughs> so I just happened to meet him at that event. And, uh, yeah, we've since become friends. and. Um, He's been very supportive of the show and other projects that I'm doing. So it's a great honor to have been connected with him just because, again, he is kind of an OG in mm. the, the new age, new era of travel. Uh, yeah. that I guess we're kind of having another era that we're shifting into now post-pandemic. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully soon. Um yeah, I don't know. I like. Are you beginning to plan for things yet? Or are you still feeling it out? Uh, I'm planning for things because I've, you know, operating a television series, and we're trying to get. We were supposed to film the first episode of season two in Japan in April, Whoa. and when that got canceled, I mean, the idea wasn't so much if we get started again; it's when because we were already geared up to to get started again. Wow! And so that doesn't mean we know what's coming down the pike or anything. It just means that we are open to the opportunities as they present themselves. Uh, obviously from a place of, of safety for everyone involved. And then also, uh, and I think this speaks to what I was mentioning before traveling with greater intention with uh, a bit slower, you know, uh, being more environmentally mindful more culturally mindful, more uh, mindful of our own physicality in a space and how we engage with people, all of those things, you know, um, that the times that we're living in have called to our attention. Wow. Yeah. You know, I'd like to maybe build up to that because the show seems incredibly exciting to me. And I'd love to talk about some of those places too, because I think you're representing some places that are kind of underrepresented in terms of not just travel TV, but maybe sort of the general like collective conscience that we all have in terms Indeed. of like, knowing about places. Right. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I won't belabor it too much cause you have an incredible audio program yourself and you've done a number of interviews, but if anyone's tuning Thank in you. cause they listen to this podcast and they don't know who you are, I'd love to just sort of build up, how, you know, travel started for you and how it became, you know, sort of a a passion in your life. Sure, sure. Well, I'll say it started off at a very young age. I was always drawn to cultures, languages, uh, flags, maps, costumes, Mm. like national costumes. I mean, those things were always very interesting to me Uh, as a child growing up in Florida in the eighties, like when we went to Disney world, I loved going to, it's a small world. And, uh, I remember loving Epcot when it first opened because it had all these countries. And so it it was already, it was always a natural, um, subject, uh, just kind of, uh, I I wouldn't say travel so much as like geography and and, and adventure. and, and, And so those are natural affinities for me as I, became aware of them and and my parents were both teachers as I mentioned before and so they stoked that interest you know they would get me books and and 
um, I do remember explicitly, I don't remember what age I was, but the, um, I'm Southern. I was raised in church like everybody else in the South. And, uh, the, the, the wife of my, uh, my preacher, Mrs. Estelle McKissick, herself a teacher. Uh, I remember she gave me a book for Christmas called free stuff for kids. And, uh, there were lots of things you could order toys and whatnot, but I really honed in on the section where you could send a postcard to, uh, it had the addresses of all of these, what we're now calling DMOs, right? Destination Mm. management organizations. But back then, um, it was convention and visitors bureaus and tourism offices for cities, states, countries. And you could just send them a postcard and they would send you a packet of information. Now, clearly we're talking about pre-internet. And uh, back then, man, I would order, I just ordered everything I could, you know, uh, and they would send these beautiful tour books and posters and, and, and travel guides. Wow. And I started collecting them so much so that my parents got me like an, an old raggedy file cabinet to keep all that stuff in. I would like call the 800 number for airlines and order timetables. And I'd convince my parents to take me to like the AAA office in our hometown. Oh, yeah. I would just like order maps and trip sticks. And um, also growing up in Florida and most places I assume, but if you stopped at like a Denny's or whatever, by the door, they would have all those like um, brochures. And, and I would just collect all that crap, all these hotel brochures from Daytona beach and St. Augustine and, I just always kind of was drawn into that world and not just as a, a, a from a, a going standpoint or a, a physical transportative standpoint, but also from a cultural standpoint. Mm. You know, I also remember going to Disney World and, and seeing the signs in Spanish and not knowing anything about Spanish, but just seeing these words that were so different than what I was used to reading. Uh, like the why by itself, you know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff, which just was, was mesmerizing to me. Um, so at an early age, uh, oh God, I remember being a kid also watching like Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, the mm. film, uh, which was on Cinemax, Vanguard Cinema. <laughs> I'll never forget it because it was so impactful. All this like heightened melodrama, which we kind of associate stereotypically with Spain and with Latin cultures for, for better or worse. But it was just a way of opening my mind to the, the world when I was growing up in the very black and white uh, society of Jacksonville, Florida, you know? Mm. Wow. And your first... And when I was... Six- Sorry. Oh, no, yeah, I think maybe that's what I'm building to. Your first experience, you went to, was it Sweden? Okay, I was just, I was going to launch into that, yeah. Cool, cool. So when I was, I I just remember seeing in movies and all that kind of stuff about like, oh, foreign exchange students. Mm. And and so I asked my parents if we could host the students. And they were like, no. Um, (laughs) Like, they... You know, they were both high school teachers, very active with with, uh, after school activities and that kind of thing. But they were like, you could go if you want to. (laughs) And I um, ran across an organization. They they had a a table at the mall in Jacksonville. And um, I it was called Youth for Understanding International Exchange. And in 1994, I was 16 years old. I did a summer a foreign exchange trip between the junior, my junior and senior years of high school. And it was to Sweden, mostly because Sweden was one of the cheaper 
programs that you could participate in. And it was one of the few that you didn't have to have a language requirement mm. to, uh, to go. So uh, with like Spain and France, you had to take either Spanish or French for a few years. And I hadn't had that language study, but Sweden, you know, and when I got there, I realized like everybody, even like four year olds were speaking a little bit of English. Wow. And uh, so I did that. And that was not only life changing, man, it was life forming for me. And, and I've never looked back when it comes to travel, you know? Well, I mean, that's a, it's a far cry from Jacksonville. Was that, I mean, <laughs> as a first Indeed. experience, was it surprising? Were you nervous? Like, um, I was not nervous and I'm not saying that I wasn't nervous because I had, uh, had some fortitude that I had built up to that point. Mm. I wasn't nervous because it wasn't in me to be nervous necessarily oh. because that kind of, I, I did have an innate sense of adventure. Uh, and I, poor mom, <laughs> I just remember as she was taking me to the airport at like 5am she started crying and she was like, I told myself I wasn't going to cry. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's really sweet because she probably was more nervous for me than I was. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, and, and after that, man, I mean, I ended, I ended up traveling to 70 countries. I've lived in five and I have friends. We both know people who've been to 170 countries, you know, so it's not, it's not a numbers game. It's just that it was something that was just always in me to do, you know? Mm. And uh, so going to Sweden and I wasn't in Stockholm, I was in a town called uh, Ronio, which was 30 minutes outside of Luleå, which is in the far North of Sweden. Wow. Um, the most famous person from there is Maude Adams, which kind of gives away my age talking about who <laughs> Maude Adams is. Uh, she was a bond girl from the seventies. And uh, it, it really, you know, I was in a in a town that it was during the summer, so it was sunlight. You know, nearly twenty four hours a day. There were mosquitoes. So it was like Florida. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't hot, but you know, it was definitely sunny and and with mosquitoes. So wow. it wasn't that different. <laughs> wow. And then, um, you know, I won't trace your whole chronology here, but I'm also a teacher, also interested in potential. Bless you. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, also thinking at some point of transitioning into the, uh, into college, you, you were a professor in Columbia for a bit. Yes. Yes. So I got my undergraduate degree in political science from Florida a university. And then I, uh, ended up at one point I was about to go into the foreign service and, uh, I took the foreign service exam. I took the written uh, and passed it, decided not to take the oral exam just because I kind of was disenchanted with the, the incoming presidential administration at the time, and uh, which we look fondly upon now. Uh, and um, I decided to go into graduate school. I got my MFA in creative writing um, from American University, but I also got a, uh, a TESOL certification. Yeah. Which, get, which allowed me, which gave me the qualifications to teach English on a university level. And I ended up moving to Colombia, South America, and I taught English and social sciences on the college and high school levels while I was there. 
I taught a little bit in Brazil as well, high school, English and social sciences. And then I ended up teaching at a university in Miami for uh, almost two years, uh, a few years after that. So um, being the son of teachers, it's almost like the family business. And I did that for a while, uh, also working as a freelance journalist before shifting full time into journalism mm. and therefore and, and then into it's starting off in, in writing and then moving into uh, broadcasting. Were you in uh, in Bogota or in Cartagena? I was in Bogota and also in Barranquilla. So okay. uh, about two hours from Cartagena by car. I mean, how did you uh, I mean, clearly you're a, you're talented. So I'm not trying to be like, well, how did you get hired there? But like. Uh, how with, how without prior experience as a professor were you able to to do that? So I through the the network mm. of phenomenal people that I've come across in my life. Uh, I remember there was a, a friend of a friend visiting. He was a, an American guy who was living in Columbia at the time. He was visiting another friend of mine in Washington D.C. while I was finishing up my graduate program. And we just got into a conversation about uh, living and working abroad. And I knew I wanted to move to Latin America. I was thinking maybe Venezuela at the time. Wow. Um, just because I traveled there. It was fun. Caracas is a, was a city that was just like, it was amazing. Um, and so I was just, I was thinking, and this was after having traveled to Latin America, after having, I probably okay. had, uh, had, had been to maybe 20 countries by, at that point. Wow. Um, and so I, yeah, I was like all set to, to move abroad, but he convinced me to come visit Colombia. And I flew down to Medellin where he lived. I stayed with him and his partner. I ended up going to, uh, for an interview at the Colombo, which is like the Colombian American cult bicultural center where they would hire foreign teachers to, to come and teach English. And it was a great environment and it looked like it would be a really good job, but the pay was kind of low. And he said, actually, there are universities in the country that pay more. So why don't you take a look at those? And I ended up calling a university in the north of Colombia, Barranquilla, the University of the North, Universidad del Norte. And they were hiring. And at the time, there was a mandate, a government mandate handed down for all Colombian university students to have taken two years of English in order to graduate. And so other universities really kind of pushed that program. And this was in maybe 2004, you know? So it was at a time when there was a great demand for English, but there, the international opinion of Columbia at the time was that it was still dangerous. It was not dangerous at all, but that was still the perception. Yeah. And so I was one of a few, a handful of folks who went there, realized that it was perfectly fine and ended up getting hired because I had the qualifications um, and they were hiring English teachers. And you, at that time, you got like a full package, uh, apartments, uh, wow. health and, 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 and other benefits and a ticket, round trip ticket. Uh, so it was similar to the kind of package that you would get teaching at an international high school, which were also very highly paid. And uh, it, it was a good, it's a good gig if you could get it. And uh, at the time, I moved from teaching in Barranquilla to teaching at a university in Bogota, which I really enjoyed. But the money was not as good as mm. if you could get teaching English at a high school in 
uh, in a country. Wow. So I did the international teacher thing for a little bit. Okay. Is it, is it okay if I incorporate some of the things that are happening in 2020 into the greater conversation? Like, I don't know if. Sure, man. I mean, we're living in 2020. Okay. Um, (laughs) well, I want to reference, you know, your blog is really great. And I think that sort of to the point you were making about, uh, bravery, essentially in in going to Sweden, you don't shy away from anything. And you talk in a really like sober and honest way that I think is really important for people to read. And you wrote a piece in 2013 and it's called my fellow black Americans. It's time to get and use that passport. I'm wondering if like, I'm going to ask that people go and read that and we'll link to your website. But I'm wondering if you could sort of talk about what the, the theme of that is and looking at that seven years later, how that might fit into the context of what's happening now. You know, James Baldwin wrote things in the 1950s that are incredibly pertinent today. Uh, and certainly I'm not in any way comparing myself to James Baldwin. Um, though I see myself often walking in his footsteps mm-hmm. as someone who left the U.S. on occasion just to breathe a little bit freer, you know, or more freely, if you will. Um, I think, you know, I wrote that kind of around the time of the Trayvon Martin verdict, if I remember correctly, because it yeah. has been seven years and it's a long time in a life. Um, and I just think it's, it's as important as ever. However, I would say that my attitude now encompasses everybody. All Americans need to be getting out into the world. Why? Because black Americans need to be getting out into the world to, to, to know that we have a place in the world, to know that we are, um, just as, important, just as um, impactful. And many of us know that, many of us embody that, but many of us are not still owning that specifically because we're coming from a society where we're often told that we are not important and we are not impactful. Um, However, uh, or not even however, in addition to, you know, I want other Americans, particularly white Americans who've never been anywhere outside of the United, uh, outside of their home state to travel, to engage, to get out of the box, to recognize what it's like in other places. And I don't mean just going to a nice hotel, you know, and and, and that international style of hotels. I mean, that's great. That's comfortable. And I do appreciate them. But you still need to get on the ground and, 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 and engage with people and talk to people. Mm. Know what the world is like. Know what it's like to not be in the numerical majority. Know what it's like to, to, to not know a language someplace and, and to need something and to have to rely on uh, hand signals and human kindness and empathy. You know, and, and, and in that way, everybody needs to get and use that passport. So it's not that the message that I uh, intended in writing that has been diluted at all, because as we can see, it's still just as pertinent as ever, but it's certainly expanded to encompass every single person that is born on U.S. soil. Because there is, we are living in a, a country that is strong and powerful because it is diverse, because it is made of people from all over the world. 
And that is what I think many people still fail to grasp. Mm. And when they travel, that that the, the beautiful world that we live in within the borders of this country opens up to them even more. And, and that is what it's going to take to have that kind of heart-centered engagement and community that not only we, you know, belong to, but that we deserve. Sorry, I'm a little passionate about it. No, I mean, this is, I mean, I think really uh, pertinent, obviously. And, you know, I appreciate um, being able to sort of use my platform and, and to share this. because. Thank you, man. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about it, too, if I can unpack some of that. Um, sure, sure. You know, I guess with a lot of things, uh, with people I've talked to on the podcast, there are there are barriers to entry. And I wonder, you know, right in, in writing that article, that would make me think that a lot of black Americans maybe didn't have a passport or weren't traveling as much outside of the country. And I wonder if that is a, sort of a, a barrier to entry type of a thing, or I was even thinking, you know, most recently, if you can't even freaking feel safe in your own country, are you going to be doubly worried then about going somewhere else in the world? Sure. And, and, and so those are two issues that I can definitely kind of uh, touch on. At the time in 2013, it was early on in what has since been dubbed the black travel movement. And I put it in quotation marks because you know, black Americans, black people have been traveling since the beginning of time. <laughs> Sorry. No um, and so, you know, it, it's, and, and so it's, but there has been a recent kind of uptick in travel among black Americans. And I, I say that intentionally because folks from Africa, mm-hmm. Nigerians and Ghanaians have also been traveling for a long time too, you know, uh, Jamaicans uh, in, in certain places, Haitians. And so, um, but black Americans, and, and it, there's for, it's for many reasons that we hadn't traveled as much. One, because of the history of travel itself being exclusionary, of being prohibitively expensive, mm. and of the necessity of finding uh, secure work and stability in life that, you know, in addition to most American jobs never had a, a long vacation time, you know, and particularly jobs that black people were allowed to, to kind of do. So when you know history, uh, it's just knowing where things are coming from. So it's not that people never had a desire to travel, but often just that the, the logistics of it made it difficult in the early days. Um, and even then you still had, uh, you know, there's, there's um, accounts written of people who black people who did fly, black Americans that did fly, but they, uh, the airports had segregated waiting rooms, but the planes themselves were not segregated. Mm. So, so those stories are told, but you know, prohibitively expensive, or when people traveled, when black Americans traveled, it was, especially in the early part of the 20th century, it was more to see family and friends uh, in, in other parts of the country, not exclusively, but that was generally kind of how it was. And so in 2013, at that time, you know, Instagram was relatively new. 
you were just seeing the advent of a lot of the, the Middle East three, uh, the big carriers from the Middle East that were offering really steep discounts on flights to Africa from the United States, which when they were, they would offer like a $700, $800 ticket to Tanzania mm. before Emirates showed up, you were paying $3,000 to fly to Tanzania on British Airways, which included an overnight or a long ass, a long, which included a long layover in London, you know? And so my point in all that is the accessibility has since become much greater. And with the advent of like Instagram and other forms of social media that are much more accessible just because people are clicking a photograph as opposed to pinning a blog post, you know, there'd been like a critical mass of, of people traveling now. And so you, and, and you also have uh, groups like the Nomadness Travel Tribe and, 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 and other support systems that didn't exist or were very new back in 2013. And so when I first pinned that piece, I was actually sometimes even being criticized for moving overseas and abandoning the cause mm. kind of thing. Like in the comments of some of those older blog posts, people were like, well, you, you left us here, that, like that kind of thing. And I get it. You know, at the time, even people in my own family sometimes felt like traveling was frivolous. And it's because of just that lack of um, awareness at the time of how inexpensive it can be. And of course, how much of a, an education it could be. And that was part of my role was to get people to see a little bit differently within, you know, the context of, of and I'm, I'm using black community less and less just because like our community isn't any different than any other community. One in that it's huge. Uh, it's not like we have meetings or anything, but also <laughs> it's within the context of a larger community, a community. So, um, that's a tough one that I'm, that I'm wrestling with that nomenclature, you know what I mean? Because it's not to dilute the importance of, of, of black Americans as an ethnic group or, or, or that, you know, our struggles or our, 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 our blessings. But I guess that's a long way of saying now things are different. Uh, more black Americans have traveled, more Americans in general have traveled abroad and still there's room for more. Um, and so I think the kind of political message behind my fellow black Americans, it's time to get that and get and use that passport. Uh, it's still resonant, even if um, the call to action ha is no longer um, a rarity. And the other thing, too. And, and so, yeah, just the resources that are available to people now are, are, have, are um, less of a barrier, mm. you know, because the, the resources help people overcome that barrier more easily. I think to your second point, and remind me what that point, what question was again, your second question? Oh, gosh. I was so deep into that right there. <laughs> um, Dude, I am a talker, so you have to like sometimes shut me up. Well, maybe I can, maybe I, I can, I can tie it back in with, so I, my, like my brain is just popping right now thinking about things. Um, because you talked about how really here in 2020, everyone should get out. And I think... To me, I, there's like two things that stand out in my mind from that. And the first is that probably Bourdain said this, like I've sort of internalized a lot of what he said, but, but someone said something to the effect of, if you sit down with someone and break bread with them, 
no matter how different their opinions might be about something or their, their politics, you can't hate them. And, you know, I've agreed. Uh, I've born into a body that has afforded me, you know, as, as much privilege as is possible. Look at me. I'm a blonde haired, blue eyed, white male from America. Um, and I've been to what's been called the American War Crimes Museum in Vietnam, which is like gut-wrenching. It makes you sick to your stomach. And while I didn't have a direct hand in that, like that is the country of people who I look exactly like and people are going to associate with those atrocities. And was met with such love and hospitality even in that place and saw signs that said like, hey, American people, we're with you. We know you're not the American government. It's like, holy shit. Like, uh, excuse me, but like, how can that be? How, how can you not hate me? How can I go to all these places that George W. Bush called the axis of evil, that, that Donald Trump called shitholes? And how can I be treated with <laughs> such hospitality like I'm a brother of the people there? Like something is amiss here. And, and, and the second part yeah. of that, and sorry to, sorry to Go keep ahead. going, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it in a second, but I, I think it's impossible to travel to places and not see how the systemic issues in the United States are part of global systemic issues. The othering of people in America is, is not different from the othering of people in Myanmar, which in 2020 has issues because it has never been dealt with post-colonialism, where in Rwanda, the, the genocide that happened there has historical roots in the othering and the different treatment of Hutus and Tutsi people under colonialism. So yeah, like you, you, unless you're sitting on a resort with your feet up drinking a sugary drink, which to me isn't travel anyway, you're going to start to see all this is connected. You know, and, and that's again to, to the point that I was saying about my expanded kind of understanding of the message of, of that essay, you know, again, it is not to diminish the original intent, which was to get to, to get my fellow black Americans to realize that we have options, mm. you know, to, to exist in the world and to be in the world. And my fellow white Americans, you know, and other Americans who have not, necessarily understood that we're all a part of a global community, they need to get out and see that firsthand. And because then again, like you said, to the point about Anthony Bourdain saying you can't, or at least I don't feel like you can hate somebody when you recognize them as human beings, you know, when you, you, you know, this is not to say that when somebody does something that it, it's, you know, there are no consequences. Mm. This is saying people are people are people are people are people. You know, my uh, parents grew up in segregation in the South. Mm. I think people think, I think people think <laughs> that, <laughs> that segregation was a hundred years ago at the same time as slavery which was not just a hundred years ago, you know, but people are not recognizing that Martin Luther King was assassinated nine years before I was born. Wow. 10 years before I was born, 
interracial marriage was illegal in 18 states and hated in all the rest of the states. You know, my home school district didn't officially desegregate until seven years before I was born, 1970. Wow. My mother's 81 years old. My dad's 73. They're very healthy and wonderful and like they're bored. In this time of, <laughs> of the pandemic, which means that they that that's a blessing. You know, they're not worried about other issues, um, but they lived through that. And yet I never once heard my parents judge a group of people by the actions of one. You know, if they had every right to hold something against an entire group of folks but they never did because they somehow were able to separate the not just to, to, to not even separate. If they were able to somehow recognize our shared humanity, you know, well, there's gotta be something to that. There's mm. gotta be something to just being able to see other people as ourselves to to recognize that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're from Ireland or Italy or Nigeria or Haiti or the U.S., you know, or China. We all love to eat. We all love music and dancing. We all love our mamas. Mm. You know, we all, like, I, I, I personally don't understand why that's so hard to recognize, but I that it is hard for many people to recognize. And that's part of my job is to continue to tell stories, continue to help people tell their own stories in the sense of going to places that historically have not gotten a lot of uh, media attention or, or press exposure or whatever else you want to call it. Um, because Again, we're all out here. I've been to all, been to 70 countries. And what I recognize is we all want the same things in life, to be seen, to be empowered, and to be loved. That is what humans want, no matter the background, no matter the boundary. Mm. And to be uh, blessed with the ability to help folks reach that level of self-actualization, I mean, that's kind of a powerful mission to be handed but it's one that I can't shy away from, no matter if I wanted to. Yeah, so let me maybe segue it to the show, because I'd love to hear about how it came about. And I wonder then if that also what you just mentioned is sort of like your mission statement or your your purpose for the show. My purpose for everything I do, be it, a travel series or a short story or novel or a feature film or a series on television, you know, as a writer, as a storyteller. And I, I, I lean more into storyteller mm. these days because it is an umbrella term that encompasses journalism, reportage, um, acting, even, you know, hosting and broadcasting, all of those different things. Um, the show, the focus is on friendship and connection, you know, Whenever I think about what I take away from a place, you know, it's the community that I've been able to build and maintain because of the technology that we have these days. You know, when I first started traveling, it was the tail end of that era when 
If you wanted to stay in touch with somebody, you had to write them a postcard or a letter, or you spent $6 a minute on a long distance phone call. Mm. You know, whereas now we have that communication is instantaneous and it's free or it's not free because you have to pay for a service to have access to the Internet. But, you know, easier to do than it was before. And my point in that is now I'm able to have my entire global community at the push of a button on my smartphone, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and that is. I mean, that's amazing. And I want everyone to have that feeling, to know what it's like to land someplace and to not know somebody. And in 10 minutes, now all of a sudden you've got a friend that you can call a friend for life. I mean, I've had those experiences. And I know that that is the kind of interaction that allows me to continue seeing myself in others. Wow. You know, and that's what the the focus of the show is. So in every episode of Fly Brother, I go to a place where I've got friends. They bring me into their community. They show me what they love about the place. And we show the audience that the whole world is our tribe. And and yes, there's food, there's architecture, there's dancing, there's, you know, uh, other all the types of culture you could have want you could want. And I'm not a foodie. You know, I certainly love to eat, but I'm not kind of like, I can't, I, that's not my lane. You know, that's not my area of expertise. Um, I know a lot of, I know a little bit about a lot. Yeah. And there are certain subjects that I know more about than the average person, architecture being one, because I'm a nerd and I love buildings and, and architecture. And so uh, while my show isn't necessarily focused on that, because I don't know how compelling that would be to many people, um, it's still a part of what we do, you know, and we go and, and, and do things that I find to be interesting, but we enjoy them in a way that I feel like is relatable to the general public. Mm. And that's why I, I do feel like the show has a little bit of something for everyone, for the foodies, for the, you know, the, the culture vultures, for the, the geeks, the architecture geeks like me and, and people who love history and, and 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 fashion and, and music and all of those things are touched on, you know, and we go to places on every continent. Season one was filmed. Season one consists of episodes in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Toronto, Canada, uh, Tbilisi, Georgia, northern Namibia, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, Stockholm, Sweden, Mumbai, India, Tajikistan, Cape Town, South Africa, Bogota, Colombia and Casablanca, Morocco. You know, places that kind of, like you mentioned before, some of those places are not known for their, for tourism. They're not known at all to audiences in the United States in many ways, uh, to the general audience anyway. And it's an opportunity to find human connection in every part of the globe. And it's also an opportunity to show off the, 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 the beauties and bounties of a place, you know, and that is also, or I don't know if that should have been pluralized. The beauty and bounty of a place. Uh, but, but, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's definitely exciting to help places rewrite their own histories, rewrite their mm. futures, you know, rewrite their stories and be, again, active and engaged parts of the world that we all inhabit. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Um, you know, earlier today, actually, just an hour before this, I was recording with somebody who's in uh, in Lagos in in Nigeria, and it was it's the first time I've had Nigeria 
represented or talked about on the podcast. Um, one of those places you just mentioned, I'm like totally fascinated by and interested in. Um, I've never had anyone talk about Tajikistan, and I, I'll tell people to watch the episode, but I, I wonder if there's a story or a general sense about the place that you have that, that you can share. Oh, man. Well, so I first went to Tajikistan in 2016 on assignment. I was updating a guidebook for the Brat Guidebook Company, mm. which is kind of a boutique brand out of the U.K., um, I have to give a shout out to my friend, Sophie Ibbotson. She was uh, one of the original writers of that, uh, edition. And she does a lot of work in the, uh, travel PR, um, inbound DMO space, um, through her own company, uh, I think it's called maximum exposure. So definitely giving Sophie Ibbotson a shout out just cool. because she's a, a very interesting person, very knowledgeable about the world, about the uh, central Asia, of course, and South Asia and, and she's just, she's phenomenal, phenomenal lady. And she sent me, she was able to, to kind of facilitate that gig. They were looking for a writer with guidebook experience who could go to Tajikistan on, you know, a moment's notice and who could do it before, I believe, October, which is when the, the, the temperature turned in a way that would make traveling uh, difficult in the space. And I happened to meet the criteria, but I didn't know a lick of Russian or Tajik. <laughs> and I think that actually helped me, one, because I was writing a guidebook where most people wouldn't know about we oh, know yeah. Russian or Tajik, you know? And so, yes, I get that there might've been people who were um, better historians of the place, certainly, and certainly people who knew more of the language. But if you're writing a guidebook, it needs to be for people who are not going to have the same expertise mm. that you're going to have necessarily. And I'm not saying experts can't write the guidebook. I'm saying it helps when you're a generalist who is expert in travel. And uh, so I was able to go and, and, and that was my first experience. And I just remember being in far flung towns in the middle of nowhere, almost, and having people bring me into their homes. And we didn't have a single shared word, vocabulary word, but we would understand each other as we were communicating in our own languages over a, a piece of bread, you know, over... Uh, a wonderful spread of Tajik food, uh, which is simple, but incredibly tasty. They use a lot of dill, which I love. Cool. <laughs> um, and just connectedness, mm. you know, and Tajikistan is one of those places where you feel it the most because of not having a lot of the trappings of, modern society, quote unquote, you know, um, yes, they've got cars and, and, and air conditioning and indoor plumbing, but I'm saying like, it's, it's, it's not like when you go to Paris, yeah. you know, which is its own experience. That's wonderful. And I, I, I obviously experience human connection when I go to Paris as well, but vis-a-vis Dushanbe, you know, um, just being there and, and, and it's a place that's got a tremendous history having been on the Silk Road, mm. having been, you know, halfway between the East and West for thousands of years. And really, you can see that uh, the culture, the mixing of cultures in the people, but at the same time, having been at the edge of the Russian and Soviet empire 
for a couple hundred years, which means that there was also an isolation. Um, in addition to the isolation of being a mountain country, you know, and, and, and sometimes being cut off because of harsh weather, um, a harsh climate, if you will. But being there and, and connecting with people, and one of the things that I love is how the, the men generally greet other men by putting their hand on their heart and doing a little bow. Wow. And it's so, it's such a powerful gesture, you know, of, of kind of, of recognition and honoring and um yeah man tajikistan dude it, it hit my heart when i my first time there and it's not that it's a utopia you know it's no place is utopia it's just a place that i really felt another thing is that they it, Tajiks and many people in the Soviet sphere, the post-Soviet sphere, they're not smiley people. Mm. They don't like go around, as my mom would say, skinning and grinning the way we do in the, in the U.S. Um, and I think that's important because even when they don't do a lot of just extraneous smiling, you still feel welcome. You feel the love and the attention and the gestures of kindness mm. that don't come from a smiley face. They can actually kind of look a bit dour sometimes, but they care for you, you know? And um, I think what I've learned is just that that's something that's kind of endemic to Central Asia. Um, And it's an honor to have experienced that and also an honor to be able to help other people in the world experience it as well. Yeah. I mean, I love that. In, in, in a far smaller way, that's sort of uh, what I try to do on here. You know, like even, I don't know, yes, if, if 10 people were to listen, I don't know, that's obviously quite low. But it's the power of one, my brother. Yeah. The one right person, which is the person that's going to hear it anyway, that person is going to take it wherever it needs to go, the message, and take that message wherever it needs to go, and it'll reverberate. So I, as someone who's... Um, and profile is rising as my show takes off. You know, it doesn't mean that I don't recognize the importance of every single opportunity to talk about human connection, you know, because it does take every single one of us. What are the chances that this ends up on, you know, one of the major streaming services or something like that someday? Is there, is there any talk about that? Um, right now we're not in negotiation, but it's early days and we're certainly open to the conversation. Uh, there are plenty of shows that start off on public television and end up on a streaming service or on a commercial broadcast, broadcast network. And we have that possibility. So anything is possible. And as we move into season two, that's also something that would be, uh, a conversation that could go one of, of many different ways, but there is, that is the strong possibility. The other thing too, is we will be uh, available on create TV, which is a, the cable network yeah. later in the summer. Oh. So even if we aren't showing in your local public television area, uh, a viewing area, we will still be on create TV, which is national later in the, the summer. So, yeah, I mean, there's but a- you do have to have a TV. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there, there's, I think there's big shoes to fill, but I think that no one's sort of, no one's doing it sort of in the post Bourdain world in a way that I think in, in my very opinionated way would like to see, you know, I loved, 
David Chang's show, Ugly Delicious, he just did a new one that's more travel-based, and obviously he's incredible. It it didn't quite do it for me because I don't... I guess I don't care about the celebrities. Like, he, he did it with, like, some very popular celebrities, and that, to me, isn't as appealing as somebody going in the stories more about the people. Um, so I think there's a space for it, and I think especially... In a in an insanely divided world and in an, in a divided country, like there is a need for it. Um, so I'd I mean I'd love to see it be you. I'd love to see something like that get picked up on a platform that everyone can just log onto an app or something and, and see it. Well, you know, man. Actually, we we're working on that even with public television. So uh. it's not impossible at the moment. But there's you know when you've got a distribution agreement, there's ways of rolling things out. And then also just in terms of the resources, you know, we are a strappy, uh, uh, strappy, scrappy startup. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we've done things with very little. Uh, And I'm actually proud of what the team has been able to accomplish because I've got a phenomenal team of of, uh, of filmmakers, Pedro Serra and uh, the team at Do Rio Filmies. In, uh, in Rio de Janeiro, my, my, my wonderful production team uh, and other folks who've come on board, you know, it's just been a phenomenal journey of making a dollar out of 15 cents. Mm. But that's also uh, allowed us to really tap into other resources and, and just stretch our wings in, in, in the, the, the creativity department. Um, that said, you know, we will be moving into having uh, streaming viewing opportunities on an app sooner than later. So great. we'll definitely keep you in the audience posted as we know more about that. Oh, that's great. We've only been rolling out on public television since May 1st. Yeah. So you're, we're still an infant uh, when it comes to television. What, um, you mentioned Japan. What, whenever things can start up again, uh, what else do you have planned in terms of season two? Uh, aside from Japan, Sudan. Oh, wow. Um, we're in negotiate. Uh, I be- okay. Now I'm like I don't know if I. <laughs> okay, say, okay. So I'm, I'm gonna leave it there. Okay, we'll we'll leave Japan, it as Sudan. It rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, though Sudan will be incredible. Any place in between. Wow. Um, okay, I'll start to wrap it. Um, where where can we send people now to find out more about your work? Find out about the show. Check out the blog. Sure. Sure. Uh, right now, you can. Our website is flybrother.net. That's where you can plug in your zip code to find out if the show is currently airing in your viewing area. We have new stations that come online every week, and uh, we're going to put our uh, kind of station listing back up. We took it down because we felt like, oh, people will put on put in their zip codes, but mm. people do kind of like to see if their cities. Yeah, you know, there. And so we're going to put that back up on the website. The website is being redesigned and updated and refreshed. Uh, but right now we are airing on public television stations around the country. So definitely check your local listings. We're in about uh, maybe 40 markets at the moment. Uh, again, new stations coming on every week. We are also, um, again, flybrother.net. We're about to kick off a, a crowdfunding campaign that is kind of a way of of allowing people to really um, kind of join the mission, have a little bit of ownership and, and, and join us as we continue to spread the mission of, um, of connection, of friendship globally. 
you know, there's, there's prizes you can get and, and, and you're obviously helping us to, to really to take care of what we need on the funding side, as well as what we need just energetically, just bringing people into the fold and, and cheering all of us on together. Uh, so that's coming out this week. Uh, so yeah, man, there's, there's all kinds of ways that people can participate and, uh, and I'm excited to again, be of service as a storyteller, as a lover of people. Uh, sometimes I want to choke people, but <laughs> most times I love them. I mean, it, it, yeah, At, starting with myself, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I get on my own nerves sometimes, but uh, that that's what humanity is all about. Yeah. And I mean, the, the plug I'll give you and like, I guess, you know, my uh, sign of endorsement is I love two sort of realms within writing for travels. I, I love narrative. I love stories. Um, but I also mm. really love the practical. And, I, and I'm not talking about like all respect to them, like the BuzzFeed kind of like five craziest ice cream places in Morocco. Like I, I, yeah. I'm much more interested in the useful and the practical when it comes to those types of articles. And that's sure. where what you do a great job of also like in the vein of what, what Rolf did when he put out vagabonding it was like, wow, I can use this as a resource. Uh, and your blog is a terrific resource. Um, but also oh, just you. like your personality with the show is exactly what you're billing it as. Like it's about friendship and you are, your energy is positivity and friendship. And it's, it, without trying to sound real cheesy, like it, it is feel good in a way that I think, uh, is very needed. Um, and your voice and your lens is one that, um, I do think is one that is underrepresented and it's, it's great to see you get to do that. And, you know, maybe there's someone in, you know, middle America that will get a perspective that they hadn't had before. So I think that the value for that is, is really great. So I uh, want to thank you for doing you know what, what you do. Hey man, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And also just the fact that you reached out, the fact that you are in your way, making sure that the message, all the messages that you're able to channel get out there. Like that's what our job is as storytellers. Mm. Sometimes the story is generated from within, but often it's, a story that we are called to amplify just by seeding the stage, you know, but we are the possessors of the stage. Yeah. And so it's like, Hey man, it's yours, you know, and, and by doing it, by having people on, by giving them a platform, you know, that, and isn't it fun? You know, it, we can't always be the generators of everything all the time. Um, and, and speaking to the idea of my voice being important right now and being feel good, listen, People are processing a hell of a lot of generational trauma right now. You know, this country is undergoing a severe and radical healing process. And the world is, not just this country, because I've, I've lived in other places and I've seen the ugliness of racism show up mm. in many other places too. Um, the thing is, though, it, it's not to overlook or discount the pain but we can't live exclusively in pain and therefore i've been one of the people tapped to kind of offer a respite you know mm -hmm. and that required that that's a tall order because i live in this society too you know i'm affected just as much 
I have my ways of coping. I have my ways of healing. I have my ways of self-love and radical self-love, which means it's not just about uh, saying I love you to myself in the mirror and giving myself a nice bath, uh, you know, with bubble bubble bath. (laughs) It's really about allowing myself to be angry, allowing myself to be hurt, allowing myself to be um, confused and all of those ways of being and loving myself through all of those. Mm. As I do that more, I'm able to love my brothers and sisters out here in the world, no matter what car we're driving, if you will, Mm. you know, in your case, yours is the blonde blue model. Mine is the, you know, the, the caramel, black guy model, you know, and, and, and it's all, it's all beautiful. You know, I love Technicolor. Don't get me wrong. A nice black and white movie is amazing. Too. <laughs> <laughs> the women 1939 or all about Eve 1950. So I'm here for a nice black and white, but Technicolor, man, you know, it is the beauty in that diversity, you know, the unity in that diversity that makes the world worth being in Mm. and that i I, man i know i sound like passionate and on fire in this this podcast but my brother there are times when i don't want to talk to anybody when i'm just in a mood and a lot of it has to do with the collective mood that we're in right now you know and people are there's a lot of judgment there's a lot of lack of empathy and lack of understanding And I have brothers and sisters on the ground doing what they feel like they need to do. It is not my place to tell anybody anything other than we're out here to love each other. And that I can speak to from my own personal experience. And so I try to stick to my lane when I embody, when I, when I feel like it's time for me to embody something that I believe in, which is that we are one you know, and that's, that's what I'm here to do. I'm going to stop talking now. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the backdrop that I'm hearing you talk right now is the helicopters going overhead. They start about afternoon here and they go through the night because it was, it's been the, the curfew sort of, uh, surveillance, um, which I thought was lifted for tonight, but I can hear them going up like right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe a, a beautiful way to end it. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm happy to be able to share your story and I hope that, you know, there's some, some folks out there that listen to this that didn't know about you that now do and and start to follow your story. So, uh, again, just thank you Uh so much. It's a, it's a real treat to get to talk to you. Hey, thank you, Tim. I'm going to shout out my, my website one more time, flybrother.net on Instagram, flybrother on Twitter, flybrother on Facebook, flybrotherfly. And, um, yeah, please follow, like, share, uh, we've got uh, opportunities again coming down the pike for people to participate, to join the movement. Um, if you feel like contributing financially, we receive humbly and gratefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, man, keep the lights on and keep keep Fly Brother in the air and on the air. That was the sign off for my old podcast. <laughs> <in the day. laughs> that is a wrap on episode 171 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much to Ernest. This was really great to get to talk to him. It's another, uh, 
you know, quarantine conversation where we had to record from different parts of the globe. But I've been really fortunate to get to to meet so many people this way. And I can't wait until we're just opening up here in New York. I can't wait till things can return to normal so that I can go, you know, share a meal, share a beer, share some stories with all these incredible and wonderful people that I've met here digitally in the last, what, three months, huh? So, all right, folks, lots of cool stuff coming up. The next episode is with an astronaut. How crazy is that? It's amazing. Uh, So stay tuned for all the cool episodes coming up. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, please take care of each other.